Iconic.ai's synthetic data platform equips developers with the data they need to build products effectively while achieving compliance and security. Shorten development cycles, eliminate cumbersome data pipeline overhead, and mathematically guarantee the privacy of your data with Tonic.ai. Please visit Tonic.ai slash Stack Overflow for more information. Head on over to that link and let them know the show sent you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my wonderful colleague and co-host, Matt Kiernander. Hey, Matt. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. We have some interesting news items today. I want to start with the first one, which we've discussed many times. San Francisco mayor says city faces remote work challenges, tech workers leave town or stay home. And uh, within this, she noted a $400 million drop in tax revenue last year, which is, I guess I don't know how big of a deal that is for San Francisco. It sounds like a large, meaningful number. I'm a little bit questionable around how she says that there hasn't been an exodus from the city, but definitely a big change. Like $400 million to me seems like more than (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's quite a significant amount yeah. of cash. And that's huge. I mean, it's it's good because there are probably like other areas now getting that 400 million, which right. previously haven't seen that, that level of tax revenue before. But yeah, that's quite alarming, I would have thought. Definitely. I mean, maybe the idea here is that like the difference between the, the exodus and the impact is that people are not going into the office, they're canceling leases, they're working from home, like she said. Even if they don't leave San Francisco, they can impact the tax base by going fully remote because almost a quarter of the office space in San Francisco is vacant, right? Yeah. I would assume before the pandemic, that was not the case at all, that it was very competitive to get office space. Yeah. I think in the article, they mentioned that one of the Salesforce buildings has reduced significantly and is now trying to lease out. They have a 43-story building in San Fran and they're um, really reducing. I was talking to a real estate agent somewhat recently and she was saying that because of the pandemic, like renting out offices and stuff like that is just very, very difficult because a lot of people, a lot of companies now don't see the need to have much more of a dedicated office space. And I'm assuming that the revenue reduction revenue there isn't just, like you said, it's not just salaries from tech workers. It's a lot of the flow on effects or collateral around people not going out as much, they're spending more time at home. I would have thought that would mean they're spending more on like subscription services and other (laughs) stuff that maybe not like local. Yeah. You know? This says that the historical vacancy is 10%. So it's more than double. It's up to 24%. In the financial crisis, it it didn't even reach 20%. It was at 19. Oh no, 15. So like it's way above the 2008 crisis. It's way above the historical average. And then you made a good point, which I hadn't thought about there. Yeah, every person who leaves is taking income tax that would go to the city with them. Like I left New York City, I paid income tax on the first half of 2020 and not the second half because I was no longer a resident of New York City. And so for every extremely well compensated tech worker that leaves for Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, that that really changes the composition of, of the tax base for SF. Which brings us to our next news story. This one's from the Wall Street Journal. 71 cities and towns are paying tech workers to abandon Silicon Valley. It's working. So this piece was about, yeah, the sort of incentives that local governments will offer, including $12,000 in cash, a subsidized gym membership, free babysitting, and free office space. So 
free babysitting, that alone is like, you know, that's like a $20,000 bonus. I mean, you know, childcare is ridiculously expensive. So 12 grand to go, 20,000 in childcare, a couple thousand gym membership, a couple thousand in office space. You know, that is a, a lucrative, fairly lucrative enticement they're throwing at people to uh, come to their, come to their small town. Yeah, that's insane. I know I was aware when I was figuring out kind of what country I wanted to settle in. There are a few countries that offer some tax benefits. So for example, the Netherlands, they have this thing called the 30% rule, which they basically kind of like cap your income tax after a certain level. Portugal as well, I think they have uh, like a flat 20% cap on all of your income tax. And so I'm, I'm curious, because this is done at the city level, whether or not this is going to make its way up to the government and the country level for them to realize that they could potentially get a lot more revenue by catering towards the high paying tech folks. I'd be interested to see if this is a permanent pendulum swing or, you know, quickly the young and, and more ambitious folks will move back. There was interesting stuff in here about two folks, one from IBM and one from Meta, Facebook Meta, one saying he loves living in Tulsa. Uh, his girlfriend recently moved in. He's paying less for a three bedroom house with a yard than he did for a one bedroom with no air conditioning or dishwasher. His girlfriend can move in. That's great. So, you know, like when people make a decision like that, it's it's kind of long-term. You know, it's just not necessarily long-term, but you buy a big house, your girlfriend moves in. You know, that's like in some ways putting down roots. It's not a, hey, I'm going to go to an Airbnb for six months and see how, you know, this whole thing shakes out. I'm looking at moving apartment as soon as I can living in Vancouver. And I've been through this process where I'm like, cool, like I'm in Vancouver, a very expensive, like high cost of living city, but I'm working remote. So really like mm. what needs to be here in order for me to pay that elevated cost of living mm -hmm, when I could mm -hmm. go off to Coquitlam or somewhere else in Canada that has got a far, far less high cost of living. I could get a three right. bedroom with a nice yard, settle in, <laughs> do the whole dog thing, have a nice little garden. You know, It's going to be interesting seeing kind of like that dynamic and as you said, whether or not this is just the swing of the pendulum or whether or not this is kind of institutionalizing and setting a standard for what work is going to look like in the future. All right, you had a good story link you dropped in here about AI image generators for D&D. &D. Cue me up here and then I'll, I'll give you some feedback because I've played around with a few of these things and gotten some fun. I love seeing this kind of stuff. For those who are unaware, there is an AI Dungeons & Dragons campaign creator. And mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Dungeons & Dragons for me is something that I've always been very interested in. I with a lot of people who have been interested in Stranger Things, it's picked that up. For anyone who's watched the latest season with Vecna, like I got really into the backstory of that. And so I'm like, oh, cool. I want oh, to yeah. give Dungeons and Dragons a go. And this popped up and it's essentially AI Dungeons and Dragon campaign creator where it's acting as the dungeon master and it's also generating AI images around that. So, you know, when you're going through a forest or a lake or a field or you're facing a, a enemy of some sort, it will actually create AI generated artwork for you to kind of follow on with a stream. And I, for me, this kind of brought on a, another question of like, this is absolutely rad. And I wonder how this is going to impact like the future of like procedurally generated stories and games. Like you can get a bunch of friends together, sit down and then have a different campaign kind of like every single session. What, what are your thoughts on this, Ben? Is this something that you'd be into? I let my son play around with this because I thought it was so neat. And I was sort of like, you're doing a story and it will write back to you. So, you know, tell it what you're doing and it will respond. And it was fascinating to him, but I guess there were no safeguards. So at a certain point, he ended up like 
making out with a, ver- a, a version of himself. And then he was confused and he wasn't ready for that. So like, I don't know how age appropriate it is. Like it was like, yeah. there's a clone of you and now you're, he's kissing. And I was, he was like, that kind of freaked him out. But you know, like you make the point about Stranger Things, like what is Stranger Things? It's like a mishmash of, you know, a bunch of different stuff. It's like, this is an eighties high school rom-com mixed with the Steven Spielberg ET inspired, you know, like sci-fi flick mixed with the Stephen King Teenagers Against the Town horror movie mixed with, you know, some of our love for Dungeons and Dragons. So like you you feed all those things into an AI generator and it will also it was it will also spit back to you, you know, some interesting combinations. It won't have the sort of art and nuance and story arc of a Stranger Things, but just as a foundation for you to play off of, to be like here's essentially like a random kind of prompt and then you as the human and the dungeon master and the character the players like take it from there, I think is is really nice. It's like a like a random number generator. Like how big is this monster? Oh, roll a random number. Now it's like a random story generator. Like we need a an encounter and it will just, you know, take you there or whatever. So I, I think that part's kind of cool. I think it is as well. It'll be interesting if you could start to say for example, if a buddy can't make it for a particular night or something like that. And then you have an yeah. AI player kind of come in the NPC takes over for him, right? It's like yeah. the computer. Yeah, exactly. That would be quite fun. And I'm I'm also kind of interested to see like whether or not AI is a creativity tool, whether that's for programming or for creative stuff like this, like whether or not that will actually inspire or have any kind of like impact on the creative work that actual humans do. You know, you might be playing a, a D&D campaign and be like, hey, that like, this wasn't quite right, but I really like that story. So I'm going to take that and then build something around that that's more concrete and tangible and has more of a flow. I also think like that, yeah, the visual element is important. Like that always gets people into it. In prior ages, you would always buy these great books or you'd, you know, ahead of time, find some great fantasy art. It's cool that it can generate it based on exactly what's happening in the campaign. And that keeps it kind of more engaged. Like you're, you're more in the story right now, the art, you know, it's kind of one of those, <laughs> it's one of those knockoff dolly twos where it's like, things are a bit blobby sometimes a bit like, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, a bit like kind of like melted clay, but it, some of it, it, it has the look and feel of a, of a medieval tapestry. Like it's not, I would buy it, you know, it requires you to use your imagination a little bit, which we need, obviously as part of this. Yeah. The art style is at least consistent from what I can see of, of these, but yeah, you're right. It's very much kind of like, <laughs> it's the rough foundations of an image, some of them, and right. some some of them are, are better than others. Also, for anyone who is listening, it's play.aidungeon.io is the URL that you want to hit. And I see in this article, uh, turn on AI Dungeon, and then there is a safe mode. So I guess they've gotten that feedback from some other parents, maybe. <laughs> yeah, because I'm sure <laughs> things could get wild very quickly, depending on how how you progress through things. So, yeah. All right, I have something I wanted to touch on here. It's it's called U.com. They have a search engine, you know, trying to compete with the very, very large search engines that kind of dominate the space. It's using AI to customize it for you, but the, the kind of first demographic they're going after is developers. And so they, I guess, offer up a couple of key features here, code snippets in the results, generating code based on a search with code complete, skim through documentation, it highlights the most useful and most read parts, access tutorials and academic publications, catch data errors, validate any JSON file, find colors, grab your hacks, or your RGB, and uh, speed through websites with 13,000 bang shortcuts. So, meh, I, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I thought it was interesting. Like, what is a way a search engine could stand out? We know from Stack Overflow, people who are doing development are constantly Googling. So we'll put it in the show notes. If any of those things sounded interesting to you, could be worth checking out. I was having a think about this earlier, and 
one of my first thoughts were, how can I trust it to know what I, I, I want? If it's using AI or some kind of like interpretive thing, how, how can I trust it to actually like get a replicable result out of it or use it in the way that I want to use it? And then I realized that like that's essentially what Google is doing anyway. I have no, <laughs> I don't right. have much control over what Google and a lot of the search engines that I'm currently using. So why is this any different? Yeah, you've come to assume that Google like has validated and the results are to be trusted because it's so omnipresent, but. Yeah, I think a lot of people and myself included have just put a lot of de facto trust in the Google search queries that I, I make on a day-to-day basis. And I'm very curious. I think a lo- this has got a lot of promise and I'm excited to see kind of how it evolves, especially if they're making programming and you know solving developer-focused problems at the yeah. forefront. Well, I mean, it's kind of mashing up a few things here. Like it's, you mentioned this the other day, we we're talking about the dev survey. What's the first thing you're going to do? Google, if you go to Stack Overflow, you don't quite understand that you're going to dive into the documentation. All right, what if we could annotate documentation to get you to the right part first? Well, you seems useful. And then the code complete or the auto suggest, this is the, you know, the big thing with GitHub autopilot or the, like the folks we had on from Anvil with a great autocomplete, like this is something that you're, you know, you're getting into every day. So I guess it seems like they're identifying common pain points that we've discussed on the show. The question is like, really like, can you trust it? Are the results good? Like would using this save you time or are these just kind of gimmicks? Like where the results that you get are not going to, not, not really going to serve you. And the good thing about this as well is that you can, you can AB test this quite quickly. If you have the same problem, you know, you can run through how it would work on Google and then run through how it would work on Ucode and kind of go from there and, and A-B test and figure out kind of what things Ucode might actually be good for and whether or not, mm-hmm. you know, you use, it just becomes another tool in your tool belt, essentially. You know that Ucode will be good for something specifically, so you use it for that purpose and Google for another thing. Yeah, yeah, you have sort of have it in one of your tabs. I like that. All right, I have two more links to shout out here. This one was in the newsletter this week. It is Go Proverbs redone for computer programming. So if you are interested in a Zen cone or two, simple, poetic, pithy, concurrency is not parallelism. Channels orchestrate, mutex is serialized. Make the zero value useful. These are fun. We'll put them in the show notes. They're fun to say. They make you seem wise, wise beyond your years. I'll do a, um, a proverb every stand-up and people will really start to respect my technical capability. Yeah, it's a good way to open a stand-up, you know, with like a, a saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then there was a good piece up from the history of the web. It's 1997 and you want to build a website. There is no Stack Overflow. So this is a fun just sort of walk through history. The book you might have had to read, how you would have taught yourself HTML and CSS, the very amazing sites like WebMonkey, a how-to guide for web junkies that were teaching you how to build your own website. Yeah, just kind of like a fascinating look back at how difficult it was back then and how sort of like lo-fi everything was. You know, everything was like very simplistic. You know, we've all seen the GeoCities pages or whatever, and, you know, they're crammed with all kinds of information and animations and color. But the reality is that the, the level of information that would have been available to you if you wanted to build was so minimal. It's very interesting reading through a piece like this because viewing what the web is today through that lens and going back and being like, oh, it would have been so... Like I could have just built like an e-commerce store or something like that and made bank and done all that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. Realistically, like a lot of those use cases weren't around back then. The web was a very 
had very different use cases in in the 70s, 80s, and, and 90s. And it, it also, on a, on a side note as well, kind of very much made me appreciate some of the low-code and no-code technology that we have today and how easy it is to kind of right. get up and running. Yeah, I mean, this was like you had to stumble on somebody and then through trial and error learn that you could trust them. Like it says, you might find yourself at Glenn Davis's Project Cool or Dory Smith's Backup Brain or Nick Kindly's Web Coder. Other small sites maintained by a single person full of excellent code examples and tips. But it's like, this is this one person's recipe book for how to do it. You know, it's not, it's not complete in any way and it doesn't harness the crowd. It's just kind of like stumbling into a library and finding a, you know, picking one of a hundred books off a shelf for how to do something. And if you get the right one, you know, you can kind of learn from that. It would have been very, very difficult to find. I'm imagining the community back then would have been very kind of like, how the podcast community operates today where the searchability is quite low and you have to kind of like, hey, I heard about this thing. You should go check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, everybody. We are going to do some recs. I have a rec. You have a rec? I will find a rec very, very quickly. I got my Ender Creality 3D printer up and running. It is quite affordable. It's, I think, $250. And sometimes when it's on sale, it's only 200 bucks. And it's great for that price. You can print out I've been printing figurines that with a lot of detail. The job of the hut looks like job of the hut. Makes my seven-year-old extremely happy. And I will pass along one tip. The thing that solved all of the problems for us was hairspray. Before you do the print, cover your print area in hairspray, and you'll get a great first layer. It will adhere, and everything builds from the first layer. So you need to have a great first layer. So yeah, after, all, after setting up my printer and going through all this high technology stuff and leveling the bed and all this stuff, the answer to how to get a good print turned out to be a 99 cent can of hairspray, but that's how it works. Wow. I would really like to see your Job of the Hut print. Yes, I will take a picture and put it in the show notes. Job of the Hut came out great. Things that are like layers of blobby fat, that's like what a 3D printer is you know, <laughs> made to do. Just like stack them. I'm very curious around getting into 3D. Just as I've been doing stuff around my apartment, I'm like, oh, you know what? That would be a really nice nifty little thing to make. So say, for example, I have a new lamp which is bare bulb and it's very, very bright. And I, what I wanted to do was just make some like 3D printed clips or something like that so I could put some paper or uh, some lantern paper or something like that around it to diffuse the light. And it's, it's little things like that where I'm starting to try and I'm very much aware I'm becoming a dad. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I just, I just want to tinker. Yeah. yeah, I watched one really amazing video. The guy had a resin printer, which has like a lot of fumes. So he put it in like a special closet with a little va- uh, fan at the top that pulled it out. But then he went on like a 10-minute diatribe. He's like, I printed this hook so I can hang this thing. And this tray fits exactly in here. And I printed this. And it's exactly the size you need to close the door. You know, it's just like like you're saying, like, it's like you could buy this at the store. You could make this. Or you could like 3D print the exact piece you need for this closet to, you know. <laughs> Every time you think that's a little annoying or wouldn't it be nice if or, you know, you just print it out. This is a, a very weird stretch. But I bought a tongue scraper recently. There is a local company in Vancouver called Gunky that sells tongue scrapers, which is supposed to help with oral hygiene, bad breath, okay. and all this kind of stuff. Okay. Could be my recommendation for today, Gunky. It, yes. it works incredibly well. And it looks like a U. And I was like, there is no dispenser or something else that I could use in my bathroom that will hold my toothpaste, my right. Gunky, and the other little knickknacks. And I was like, this is if I could 3D print something, that would it could just stick on the mirror and I could clip. That's what you it's know? perfect for. That's really yeah. what it's perfect for. I do have a tech rec that is actually technical and not just for oral hygiene. So 
if anyone has been interested in game development, there's been a few things happen recently in the world of game development around acquisitions and mergers, and some people are not quite happy with the state of a couple of companies there. There is, however, one company that people are very happy with, and that is Godot. Godot is an open source game engine that specializes. It's it got a 3D pipeline. It also has a 2D pipeline, which is a lot more solid. And so I've been I've been looking to contribute to open source in some way. And I think Godot is going to be one of the things I'm going to investigate being able to contribute to, spend some time with. It, it looks like a lot of fun. There's a very good YouTube channel called DevDuck, which is making a environmental kind of conservationist. 2D video game about going into an island and doing a whole bunch of stuff. There's uh, some really good devlogs. So my recommendation, if you're looking for any open source work, if you're interested in game development and Unity and Unreal, uh, a little bit maybe too intimidating or you're wanting something a little bit more lightweight and streamlined, I would recommend checking out Godot. It looks like a hell of a lot of fun. All right. Very cool. Yes. A quick search on Thingiverse tells me there are about four or five tongue scrapers you can print out and not (laughs) one, but two tongue scraper holders. No, three. So people have had this challenge before. They're out there. You would just download the file, maybe size it, like you could scale it up and down. You know what? I'll print one out. Tell me, you you have to send me your specs. I'll print you, I'll I'll mail it to you. I just, I find it very, you know, like telling kind of like what interests are in 3D printing. You're doing Jabber the Hut. I'm doing tongue scrapers. (laughs) I'm very curious what Cassidy and Siora would be printing as their first print. But thank you. Yeah, I'll send you you the gunky dimensions and we'll see what happens. Send me the gunky dimensions. We'll see if we can hook you up. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. Let me look up a lifeboat badge. Is there a way to create bottom bar using Swift UI? Lulu Gaga was awarded the lifeboat badge two days ago for helping to answer this question and get a great accepted answer. It's been up for two years and been viewed almost 8,000 times. Lulu Gaga, thank you for sharing some knowledge. You've got a great screen grab in here, plus a image of what it looks like on an iOS device. So thanks for sharing your knowledge with the community. Oh, you know, one more thing. I just have to say, once you get into 3D printing, then you learn how to use the slicer or whatever. And then eventually you're like, I want to make my own 3D thing from scratch. So then you download Blender and then immediately you land on the Stack Exchange for Blender like the second you Google something. So shout out to that Stack Exchange, which is full of great information. I've actually used Blender a few times in the past just for modeling stuff and, and doing some animations as well. Blender is another, I think Godot and Blender is, are two open source tools that are just absolutely fantastic. Blender has got a very, very interesting history. I can't believe how powerful it is for something they give away for free. I mean, it's, it's awe-inspiring. Awe we should try and get the creator of Blender on because he's a very interesting fellow. He... You know, he could have monetized Blender very, very easily, but the whole point yeah. of what he wanted to do was to create something that was open source and free and, and, and be industry standard. I've got friends who work at Weta Digital, which is the VFX house that did all the Lord of the Rings, King Kong, right. all that. They use Blender, which is a free tool for a lot of their yeah. 3D modeling. Yeah. It is incredibly so cool. good. Right. They're not using some fancy pants software. They're just using good old Blender. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. As always, I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Hit me up on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us, podcast at Stack Overflow with questions or suggestions. And if you like the show, leave us a comment or a review. It really helps. Thanks, everyone. My name is Matt Keenander. I'm a developer advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online, YouTube, Twitter, all the places at Matt Kander, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R. Quick shout out to Marcelo, who wrote into the show. Matt and I have been talking about 
Git and folks who don't use it at work and how I was a little bit surprised Matt had had that experience. So Marcelo shared a few of his experiences about using ABAP code and working with ServiceNow and other areas where SAP plus decades of customization, he was not able to use it. So always appreciate people listening and sending us information. All right, everyone. Thanks as always for listening and we will talk to you soon. Bye.